Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So let's begin a word of prayer. Our Father, we turn to your word with expectancy, and we expect you to meet us there and to speak to us and teach us something. We expect you to challenge us. We expect you to move us off the base of where we were this morning. We pray that you would move us higher, move us deeper, uh, stretch us further than we've been stretched before. We want to commit our hearts to you then, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, a man visited the church where I was ministering and uh, got into a conversation with him. During the course of the conversation, I asked him, I said, well, what brought you to visit our church? And he said, well, don't misunderstand me, but I'm sick of the gospel. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the church where I go is, that's all they do every Sunday, is they preach the gospel. And don't get me wrong, I love to hear the gospel and I love to see people get saved, but I really want to know something more about the Bible than the gospel. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to find out what the Bible says about how to live my Christian life. It's a frustration many have, I believe. And there's a point in all of our lives where we, we come into the family of God through the door of salvation, but we soon realize that we want to grow. And pablum is no longer enough. It has to give way to porterhouse. Our desire turns from milk to meat. Churches, however, I believe, and I am convinced that many churches are full of spiritual infants, those who have never really gotten off first base, those who meet Sunday after Sunday reciting the same truths, and, and it may be good truth, but it's the same truth, and it's what Paul would call the milk, the basic or the basic things of the word, and they need to go on in their Christian lives. Earl Rodmacher has written an article here in uh, our newsletter about believers in the judgment seat of Christ. But let me quote from him. And he's past president of West, uh, I believe, uh, Western Seminary and uh, Phoenix Seminary. And this is what he writes. He says, I believe that America probably has the largest spiritual nursery that it has ever had in its history and that it can be a real drain on our spiritual resources. We desperately need to move people out of the nursery and into the infantry. Many people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and that's great, but there's no follow-up. We wouldn't take a baby from a hospital and say, or, and lead it to the door and say, okay, now you're on its own, your own. Every baby leaves a hospital under the care of physicians or nurses or, or certainly parents. There has to be follow-up, there has to be growth, and there has to be development lest Christians stagnate where they are. And I believe that God, and what the Scriptures clearly teach us, is that God desires us to grow. He desires us to grow to be more like Christ and to deepen our spiritual roots in Him. So there is life after salvation. But what is that life to be like? In fact, the Bible says it's to be abundant life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life, eternal life, and have it abundantly. So Christians are to be living an abundant life, an overflowing life. 
And salvation is just the beginning of that life. A growing process begins with salvation. So what we're saying today is that salvation is not the, not the end of anything. I know that we work and we pray and we witness and, and then we see people get saved and we rejoice, but that's not the end. There's much more to rejoice over. Salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of a whole new life. What comes next then in the life of a Christian? Well, let's, let's go to the first point. Salvation brings a new relationship. Salvation brings a new relationship. The Bible teaches us in passages like John 3 that you must be born again, and those who are born again can enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? It means to receive a new life, to be born from above with God's life now implanted in us, and that which is dead is now alive and springs up into a new life. And so a person who is born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ has a new life in them has the seeds of a new life, and they begin to grow. Just as a baby is born and invested with that, that physical life, now that baby must grow and develop. And just like a baby, just like our physical birth, every Christian is born into spiritual babyhood. No one is born spiritually mature. There has to be time. There has to be input. There has to be experiences. All of these things feed the growth of a new Christian. When a Christian is denied or when a Christian neglects uh, these kinds of things, that Christian will stagnate and remain a spiritual baby. And there's nothing uh, more tragic than to see a, a, a person who has uh, spiritually been in the family a long time and yet wearing spiritual diapers. Isn't that a revolting thought? To see a grown person wearing diapers and sucking his or her thumb. Well, spiritually, you know, that was the situation in Corinth when Paul wrote to them. And uh, his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 begin, he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He was noting their spiritual babyhood. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. What happens when you feed a, a baby with solid food? He chokes. You have to give the baby what the baby's ready for. And so Paul said, well, we'll just put aside these solid truths and we'll just feed you milk because that's all you're ready for. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. What a pathetic picture we have of the Corinthian church, of these Christians where, that Paul expected to be grown up and mature and adult in their spiritual lives. And yet they were still in their infancy and in diapers. They had to grow from their babyhood in the Christian life. So salvation begins a new relationship. There's a new birth and there's also a new perspective. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a new perspective that accompanies salvation. A new perspective we should all have. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15, speaking of Christ, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You see, when we realize that Christ died for us, then we should reciprocate in wanting to live for him, is what verse 15 is saying. Therefore, verse 16 says, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't look at people the way we used to before we were born again, or according to our own natural abilities. We now see them in a different light, he's saying. 
even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, there was a way that you looked at Christ before you were a Christian. Perhaps you thought he was a good man. Perhaps you thought he was a, you might have thought he was God, but you really didn't see him as your Lord and Master. And now, and now it says we don't look at Christ any longer in the same way. We look at him in a different way as well. A spiritual rebirth gives us a whole new perspective. And then verse 17, which is familiar to us all, goes on to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. And what is he speaking of? That when a person becomes a Christian, suddenly everything changes and is new? Well, I think the experience of many, and uh, probably yours and mine alike, is that things don't become new overnight. But we do have a new perspective when we come to know Jesus as Savior. We suddenly see people different, and we see Him differently. We have new possibilities of what we can become in Him. Whereas before we were cut off, dead in our sins, now we are alive in Christ, and all the life of God is available to us since He now lives in us. We have new power because the Holy Spirit lives in us. A new power to live the Christian life that is expected of us. So yes, all things become new potentially, but not overnight. And so the Christian life is a life of living out that which is new to us. And we have new expectations of us. God expects us to grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 And we have new commitments that are expected of us, like Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy or the fact that he has saved you, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him which is your spiritual service of worship. New expectations to those who are Christians. God now wants those who believe to live a life of obedience, of following Christ. In biblical terminology, or in gospel terminology, or in Jesus' words, this is called a life of discipleship. It's called becoming a disciple. And so the second point I want to make is that saved people are called to be disciples, or followers of Christ. And that's what the word means. Disciple means learner. It comes from the simple word that means to learn, but means learner. It's uh, an equivalent to that in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is to follow. When Christ invites people to follow him, he is issuing an invitation to come behind him, to take him on as master, to become, to enter into a student-master relationship, and to follow him as they did in the ancient world. Today, we don't follow. We we to learn or to apprentice, we go to a technical school or we enroll in classes and we have a professor for a couple hours a week. But in the ancient world, when you followed a master as a disciple, what you did was you didn't enroll in classes, you lived with them and you followed them. And where he went, you went. When he slept, you slept. You ate with them, you walked with them, you talked with them, and, and through that molding process, 24 hours a day, you became like your master. And the Bible says that a disciple is to become like his master. So saved people are called to be disciples. And Jesus issued that invitation to all who became saved and, with, and to whom he had contact. He called them to be disciples. He was always calling those around him to a life of discipleship. We see it in a number of passages. We see it in John chapter 8, verses 30, uh, 31, 30, 31, where he preached to the Jews. And it says in verse 30 that some of the Jews believed in him and then he said in verse 31, to those Jews who believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or you are truly my disciples. In other words, he says to save people, if you abide or continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Then you'll really be my students and my followers. And then another passage uh, as an example, there are many, is Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all you, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I think verse 28 speaks of salvation. Come to me. That was the invitation Jesus always offered to the unsaved person. Come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. He invited people to come. Come for salvation. I will give you rest. I will, I will give you rest from your heavy burdens, the burdens of the Pharisees, the burdens of the Judaistic legal system, the burdens of guilt and sin and shame. I'll give you rest. I'll take all of that away when your sins are forgiven. But then verse 29, Jesus says, I think this is a double invitation. Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. That's the second step. After you come to me in salvation, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you want to continue in that rest now, he says to take my yoke upon you. And the picture of a yoke, of course, is a picture of submission. And he says it right there, and learn from me. So those who are saved are now to, to enter into a relationship of submission and learning from the Lord. It may not be real clear to you from this passage, but from this and others, I conclude that there is a very distinct difference between coming to Christ in salvation and remaining with him in discipleship. And, and if we confuse that distinction of salvation and discipleship, of believing in him and following him, there will be confusion in our Christian lives and confusion in how we communicate the gospel. And let me then uh, talk to you about the differences between salvation and discipleship, okay? I'm going to just flash a chart up on the wall and you can look at the difference. Oh, we could make the chart a lot longer. But when we're talking about the difference between salvation and discipleship, we're talking about the difference between justification and sanctification. Those are the theological terms. Justification is when God declares us righteous. He, he declares us innocent from our sins. It's a one-time um, act that God uh, does on our behalf when we believe in Christ as our Savior. However, sanctification is a process of growing to be like Jesus Christ. Those are the, that's the theological distinction. Justification is a point in time. Discipleship is a progressive action. It goes on. It's a lifetime commitment. In salvation, Christ's redemption is applied. Salvation concerns our position before God. In other words, sal salvation places us in a position of acceptance with God. But discipleship is about our experience with God. Now, how are we going to live and work out that position before God? Now that we have a new relationship, how are we going to experience it? Salvation is a spiritual birth. Discipleship is spiritual growth. You're only born once, but you grow for a lifetime. 
Salvation is a free gift. We've talked about that for weeks and weeks. Salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. It comes through faith in Christ alone. But discipleship is a costly commitment. You have to pay a price to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It involves certain commitments you make. And often is hard work. Salvation is coming to Christ. Discipleship is following Christ. Salvation comes through believing the gospel. Discipleship comes through obeying the commands. In other words, it's the difference between faith and faithfulness. Salvation comes through faith. Discipleship comes through faithfulness. In salvation, we believe in Christ as our Savior. In discipleship, you abide with Christ as your Lord. The word abide, again, means to continue with, to remain with. In salvation, the issue is eternal life. God grants us eternal life on the basis of faith in Him as Savior. In discipleship, the issue is not salvation. You're not continuing to work to, earn, to keep or earn your salvation, but you are working for eternal rewards. And so the, the disciple is motivated by rewards, both in this life, as Jesus said, and in the life to come. And so Peter says, you know, what are we going to get that we, when we give up our homes and our families? And Jesus says, you're going to receive so much in this life and in the life to come. And that's the issue in discipleship. Not just eternal life, but rewards. So I hope you see that there is a real difference between salvation and discipleship in the Bible. And um, when we look at the conditions for discipleship, it becomes even clearer. We said in the past that there is only one condition for salvation, and that condition is faith in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And I've tried to emphasize week after week, that that is the simple condition for salvation. But what are the conditions for discipleship? Well, since discipleship involves all of our experience and all of our life, you could expect to find many conditions and many different conditions, many hard conditions. And I just want to list eight of them for you today. And I'm going to run through them in rapid order, briefly explaining them. What are the conditions for discipleship? Now, first of all, let's look at John chapter 8 again. We'll go over that. Now, also notice as we read these that in each of the contexts, I think you will find that Jesus is issuing these invitations to discipleship and conditions for discipleship to those who are saved. And so these are conditions given to those who are believers. They, it would not make sense for Jesus to demand these things of those who are unbelievers. In John chapter 8, verse 30 through 31, again, he said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. What is the condition here? The condition is to continue in the word of God. To continue in the word of God. What do, what do we mean by abide or continue in the word of God? That means to be in the word, to be controlled by the word, to be living in a relationship of submission to and obedience of the word of God, to abide in the word of God. An indication of this in your life might be that you spend regular or daily time in God's Word and that your desire is to read it, to study it, to know it, and you apply yourself diligently to knowing God's Word. A true disciple, according to Jesus, 
devotes himself to knowing God's word, like the early church in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, remember Jesus said uh, what we call the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, how do you make a disciple? Well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe whatever I've commanded you. A disciple is a learner, then, of God's word. The second condition that we find in the Bible is that we must put God's will first. Luke chapter 9. We must put God's will first. Here he says, in verse 23, he says to them, and who is them? It's the disciples. Look up at verse 18. His disciples joined him after the feeding of the 5,000. And he said to them, his disciples who were saved, if anyone desires to come after me, same as follow me, not come to me, but come after me. There's a difference there, you see. Let him deny himself. To deny yourself means to put God's will first, to say no to yourself and to say yes to God, to surrender your desires to him, to do what God wants you to do instead of what you want to do, to say what God would have you say instead of what you want to say, to desire the same things that God desires is the, the sign of a disciple and a condition for discipleship, putting God's will first. So not only do we surrender our time in the word to him, we surrender our desires to him. And then thirdly, right there in the same verse, it says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now already you see why this can't be a condition for salvation. Otherwise, we'd have to take up our cross every day in order to be saved. It'd be a commitment we'd have to make every single day. It would imply that we'd have to be saved every day. So it doesn't make sense. It's a condition of salvation, of discipleship, that means we must be willing to suffer for Christ. To take up your cross means to be willing to enter into the same suffering that Christ suffered. In the ancient days, when a person was crucified, the authorities would try to humiliate them and shame them to the greatest degree. And part of that was to carry their own cross, cross member, uh, not the vertical, but the horizontal piece of the cross, through the streets. And they would fasten it to their arms, and they had to suffer. And they were jeered and beaten and ridiculed as they walked down the streets carrying the cross piece on their back. Now, when Jesus did that, of course, and we must enter into the same suffering, willing to enter into the same suffering and shame through our identity with him that he endured for us. And that's a condition for discipleship. Are you willing to be embarrassed for Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for him, to be ridiculed? For him, And yes, it does even imply that you must be willing to die for Jesus Christ. And so he is the priority in your life. So the third condition is be willing to suffer for Christ. A fourth condition, I would say, is right there also in verse 23. The last part, it says, and follow me. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you must follow him. Again, the word follow implies entering into that pupil-master relationship. So that you're coming to him as a learner and you're imitating him. And where he goes, you go. And where he leads, you follow. Your ambitions for your future are subject to him and not to your own whims and desires. It's not your map that we're following any longer. It is his map for your life. A fifth condition for discipleship I get from a different passage. If you turn a couple of pages to Luke chapter 14. 
Luke chapter 14 and verse 25 and 26. There's a lengthy passage there about discipleship. But he says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. Now, if anyone comes to me, I think that speaks of salvation. And does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If they want to come to him in salvation and yet take a further step of becoming a disciple, then there's something demanded of them. They have to hate their family members. Now, what is he saying? Jesus said it, not me. If I wrote the Bible, I probably wouldn't have put it in those terms. To say that you hated somebody was an acceptable idiom in those days, and it simply meant that you choose one person over another. It means that you have such a high devotion to something that you, you, you may turn your back on the other for the sake of the one. If it helps you at all, back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus put it a little different. He says, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So you see, he's saying the same thing. He's saying that your love for me must be so far above your love for any other relationship, mother or father, husband or wife, anybody in this world, that you would choose me, and it would even look that you are despising them in comparison. And so I, I take it and have worded it this way as a fifth condition for discipleship that we are to give our supreme loyalty to Jesus Christ. Our first allegiance, our first love, and our first loyalty is to Jesus Christ as our master. A sixth condition for discipleship that we find is in the same passage, Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And here I think Jesus is saying that he wants possession of all of our possessions. He wants to be the master of everything that we have and everything that we own such that we would be willing to forsake it to follow him. And so the question for a disciple is not how much do I give, but how much can I keep for myself because God owns it all. It all belongs to him. How much does he want me to keep? And so a true disciple has forsaken things in his or her heart in such a way that when he or she sees a need, that disciple is free. Yes, free indeed, Jesus said, to share what they have with the person in need. They are not given to possessions and controlled by possessions. They don't idolize possessions and material things, but have the freedom of the heart to say, hey, it belongs to God anyway, and I'm his follower, and if God tells me to give it to you, I'm going to give it to you. If God tells me to give it to the church, I'm going to give it to the church. I'm going to follow God's direction because I have forsaken all of these things in my heart. Another condition for discipleship is, is the one that we looked at in Matthew chapter 11, and uh, we'll repeat it for our list of conditions. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Again, this picture of taking a yoke is one of a, a, a master or a farmer uh, putting a yoke on an animal so that he will be able to control that animal, and that animal will have to submit to his desires. And what Jesus is saying is that the condition for discipleship here is to take upon yourself his authority. Get under his authority. Be in submission to him. Take his yoke upon you. Get under his word. Get under his authority. And let him put you to work. And then in the very same passage is the eighth condition for discipleship. 
and learn from me, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Become a student of your master. Study him and concentrate on him. Be an apprentice to his ways and, the, and his will. Be teachable, I think he's saying. If you're going to learn from Jesus Christ, you can't come to him as a know-it-all. You come to him as a sponge. What can you teach me, Lord? The best disciples are teachable disciples. So the conditions for discipleship, you see, are many, and we could name more, I believe. And I think many more are implied. For example, we didn't mention John 13, 35 until now. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Or he says, um, by this people will know you're my disciples if you bear much fruit. And so we can imply that there are many other conditions for discipleship. But what I'm getting at is that whereas salvation is very simple, you see, discipleship involves a lot more. And there are many conditions for it. And there are as many conditions for it as there are aspects and areas of our lives to bring under the control of Jesus Christ as our master. Let me briefly then draw some conclusions. And the first I've really stated and will restate that these are not then conditions for salvation. If these were conditions for salvation, then we would be meriting or earning our salvation by how much we turn over to Christ or how much we, time we spend in his word or how much we suffer for him on a daily basis or how much we love him or how much we're willing to give up ownership of everything. But you see, these things are not really measurable. They're not really measurable because every day I find something in my life that I haven't turned over to God. And he asked me for that too. And so how would a person ever know that they're saved in this way? How would a person ever know that they're fully, 100% submitted to Jesus Christ as master? These are conditions for salvation, are conditions for discipleship and not conditions for salvation. Second conclusion, coasting Christians are denying God's will for their life. Coasting Christians are denying God's will for their life. A Christian who enters through the doors of salvation and is content to merely be called a Christian, seen as a Christian, or know Christ as Savior, and not enter into his deeper graces and truths and make the deeper commitments of discipleship is I say it flatly and bluntly, is denying God's will for your life. It is a sluggardly, negligent, ignorant attitude that despises God's grace. No, and it, it will lead to a life of no fruit, no power, no peace, and spiritual babyhood. And God doesn't want his children to remain in diapers forever. He doesn't want his children to be sucking their thumbs forever, just as you don't want your children to do that. God wants all of his children to grow up into him in a life of discipleship. Where do you find yourself this morning? Do you find yourself still on first base spiritually, maybe, some of you? In infancy? Well, that's okay if you're a new Christian. Where do you find yourself, though? Maybe you need to find a way to grow deeper in him. Maybe you need to get the discipline of a daily time in his word. 
Maybe you need to get into some kind of accountability situation or group where people will challenge you and see that you stick to your commitment of staying in his word. Maybe you can find somebody who's going down the path a little bit further and attach yourself to that man or woman so that you can learn from that person. And if you are that man or woman, maybe you can find somebody to bring along with you down the path of discipleship. Be sure, be careful that you're not coasting through the Christian life. It shows that we're not appreciating the grace of God in all that he did for us. Because he died for us, the scriptures say we should live for him. Another conclusion is that there is always another level of commitment. You see, when Jesus issued these conditions, he spoke to his own disciples who had already left things to a certain degree, and yet he asked them to leave more. And I like to say it this way, that there is a sense in which every disciple is challenged to be more of a disciple. In other words, you never arrive in your, in your journey of discipleship. Discipleship is a process and not a destination. And so I don't care where you are today, myself included, God has outlined for us another step of commitment. It will be different for me than it is for you because he's working differently in our lives. But there is another level he wants each of us to step up to. So woe, is, woe to the person who thinks that they've arrived on the final step. But each step reveals a new step. It's so clear in the life of Peter what Jesus was doing. You know that Jesus told Peter to follow me seven times in the Gospels? Seven times he told the saved person to follow him. But each time it was in a different sense. He was calling Peter constantly to a higher commitment to him as master and Lord. Trace the life of Peter and you will see a parallel to your life. The commitments he asked of you last year or five years ago or when you were a new Christian are not the same as the commitments he's asking of you today and tomorrow. There is a sense in which every disciple is challenged to become more of a disciple. So the question is, what is God asking you to do today? And then the final conclusion. Desire is not enough. There's a price to pay. It's not enough to want to be a disciple. There's going to be an actual price, a cost involved. It's not easy to be a disciple. We said that salvation is free and simple. But discipleship is hard and it's costly. Oh, if you ask a lot of young people, probably most young people, they would say, oh, I really would love to be a professional athlete. I would just love to be a professional athlete and make all that money and have all that glory. But you know why there's so few that make it? Because there's so few that are able to pay the price involved. I recently heard a golf pro talking about his past, and he said at the age of, of 10, he, was, he had broken into the 80s in his golf score, which golfers know is a pretty good benchmark for being a, a decent golfer, I think. I'm new to the game. But then he said at the age of 13, he was breaking par regularly. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy certainly got, tells me a couple things about it. He got started early and he worked hard at it because I haven't broken the hundreds yet. <laughs> He's working hard at it. He's paying the price. He probably lived on the golf course. To be a disciple, it's not a, it's not a pastime. It's not a hobby. It's got to be the priority in your life. You pay the price. You make the commitments. It's God's calling for you. And, and that is where you're headed. It is a single focus. So what is God calling you to do today? 
What is he calling you to give up today? What is he calling you to deny yourself today? What cross does he want you to pick up and carry for him? What shame does he want you to suffer? See, the question is, what will it mean today for you to become a better disciple? And as you make these commitments, remember, we're not working for salvation. We're working for the rewards of reigning with him in heaven, the rewards of sharing in his glory, and of a deeper and richer experience of him for all of eternity. The disciple is somebody who is laying up treasures in heaven. So I hope it's clear that salvation is only the beginning. It only starts what is to be an eternally rich future. And I wonder if you're here today and if you've been saved, if you've really made the commitments of discipleship and surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master and said, Lord, I want to be your pupil, your learner, your disciple. I want to follow you. Now lead me into the relationships here in this world that will help me to become more of a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. Would that be your prayer today? And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't taken that first step, then of course, the challenge to you is, will you come to know Christ as Savior and ask Him to forgive your sins so that you can begin this wonderful, abundant, overflowing life of joy and peace and rest as you see God working and shaping and doing miracles in your life as you follow Him in discipleship? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we... We reflect on the riches of salvation that we receive in Jesus Christ. And we glory in the prospect that forever and ever and ever, there's nothing that can separate us from you. But what a wonderful thought it is to realize that you didn't take us immediately from earth, but you left us here, not just to know about the riches that you have for us in eternity, but to experience, to begin to live out and experience those riches. I thank you, Father, for the wonderful grace of God that brings us salvation, but also teaches us to live a life for you. And I pray that you'd help each of us to make the decisions of discipleship, to further commit ourselves to you and bring ourselves under your authority, that you might begin to bear fruit through us, fruit that will resound to eternal glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.